This is the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 20th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers coming to you this week as we get ready for the last couple of weeks of the tax year from Phoenix, Arizona, where we actually finally got cool enough by first time this season. I've actually had to turn the heat on in my place. So it's kind of, hey, yeah, it finally cooled down enough that, that the heat inside and the insulation wasn't enough to stay above. Yeah, if I don't like to have it in the low 60s, I need to turn the heat on. So I know the rest of you are like, yeah, that's tough, tough problems to have this time of year. But still, you know, it's one of those things we've got here. So this week, I'm going to talk to you about stuff. Now, one thing that happened this week, I've got a lot of final presentations that were running this week. So I actually was involved in doing presentations a uh, vast majority of days during the week. And that involved NN client meetings for tax planning and all those other things together. So I didn't get to write up all of the things this week. Uh, but the ones, I, the two I didn't were actually things that aren't that big a deal in this. I shouldn't say there weren't that many changes. We're going to go through the annual revenue procedures this week. So essentially, we'll walk through what they are. But two of them, well, we have two annual changes, plus we have one. That is just an update because we finalized some rules uh, dealing with the employee, I should say, dealing with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act small business accounting rules, and we'll talk about what they did there, but it's pretty straightforward. So let's talk about this week's issue. First thing is, well, the, Bi the Build Back Better Act, I almost said Bipartisan Budget Act again, the Build Back Better Act, it failed to clear Congress before the two chambers adjourned. So they're both out. But then on Sunday, we actually got um, you know, Senator Manchin both went on uh, the Fox News Sunday program and was and basically also put out his own press release, which essentially said that he could not vote uh, for the Build Back Better Act. Now, it's not totally clear because of how it was how they stated it, whether it's like he can't vote for anything or whether he wants it, he could vote for a drastically restructured bill. So we'll have to kind of figure out what it means. But in the minimum, I think we're going to say that it probably means that if we are getting anything, well, first, it's going to be next year. We'll talk about that because obviously they're not in town anymore. But secondly, it's probably also going to be a much stripped down version of even what we got out of the House, which, as you remember, was a stripped down version of a much larger bill that started in the House. So we'll see what, if anything, happens there. But yeah, if you did a lot of planning based on the Build Back Better Act text that was being circulated that came out of the House, uh, you know, when they pushed it over to the Senate, yeah, probably need to go back and advise clients that that stuff might not happen. So, and it certainly won't happen in time for the end of the year. We'll talk also about the fact the IRS released the uh, business mileage rates and other mileage rates for 2022. And so we'll talk about that. It's not surprisingly, they went up some, but we'll talk about what those rates are and just the annual updates. We also had the IRS updated the automatic change revenue procedure for small business accounting method changes. And these are the ones were added by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. As you may recall, we IRS finalized regulations last year on the on this bill. So we had the final regulations for the small business accounting method changes. 
these regulations take into account first that we're more than three years past the TCJ effective date, but secondly as well, you know, how we're going to deal with a few other issues and some mods that went into those final regulations. And finally, the IRS published uh, with very minimal changes the annual disclosure revenue procedure to tell you how you're supposed to uh, be able to put enough on the return to protect the taxpayer and or the preparer from penalties when a position has reasonable basis but not substantial authority. And so we'll talk about all of those items here today. With that, let's talk about what happened to the Build Back Better Act. Well, first thing was during the weekend, th this we knew early on. You know, in essence, th this week it was made official what everybody had concluded about a week ago, that there was no way this bill was passing before the end of 2021. And now at this point, both chambers have adjourned. The Senate will come back on January 3rd. And the House is going to come back January 10th. Obviously, since the Senate has not even voted yet, we would have to have at least a Senate vote, followed by at least then a House vote to accept the Senate changes, or we need to go to conference, and then both chambers would have to vote on a conference bill. So obviously, both had to be in town regardless of what happens, except for the wildly outside chance the Senate would have just accepted the House bill which we pretty much knew there was no way that was what was going to happen. So in any event, it's definitely pushed to next year. And then I'm taping this on Sunday, basically. So we're doing this on the 19th. And this morning, Senator Manchin went on Fox News Sunday and essentially said initially his answer was he, no, he, 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 could, he would have to be a no vote on moving forward on this bill. And when pressed a little bit, he said, oh, yeah, he, he's a no on the bill. Now, moving forward on the bill is a technically different than voting for the bill. It's like moving forward. And so it could be more negotiation. But his later statement he put out seemed to more directly dis disagree with a good chunk of what's in the bill in terms of its size and scope. So we'll see what exactly comes of this. That's obviously going to be something that. I am certain there's going to be some back and forth prior to Congress coming back in January. Certainly, I expect that uh, the Democrats, other Democrats, are going to try to figure out if Mnuchin is just an absolute no on anything at this point, or is he a no on the bill that's in front of them at the moment, but with some significant changes, he might be a yes on something that's smaller. So keep your eye on that. But what's pretty clear at this is, any bill we do get, and it will be next year, will probably be significantly smaller. Uh, earlier in the week, Senator Manchin had been indicating that he either wanted to see the child tax credit made permanent or he wanted to see it taken out of the bill. He has indicated he is upset with what has become a standard budget gimmick, which is rather than, you know, let's say just say up front that we're going to have something put in the bill and it's going to cost this much over the 10-year time frame because it would be here in a in this type of bill it would have to be in the 10-year time frame because it can't increase deficits outside of that but what would happen is instead of doing that you, you just like put it in for a year or two and make it an extender and as you're probably aware we've had a we have a ton of extenders they keep going 
And the problem is, to be honest, we all know those things are meant to be permanent, but we just pretend they're short term so that we can pretend they don't cost. Right. And so that's one of those issues. So apparently he, he wants them to actually come up with a program that would be permanent as opposed to one that would, you know, have to have to be renewed by a later Congress. So, yeah, it could get interesting. That's assuming he's just not against the entire concept at this point. We'll have to see. But as I say, the big takeaway from this is if you and your clients have been doing a lot of planning based on the Build Back Better Act uh, provisions coming into the law for next year, you better back off. If Don't do anything that is, shall we say, harmful. You're back to kind of the uh, medical Hippocratic Oath. When you do planning in this age of uncertainty, and we always have an age of uncertainty with Congress, for anything very long-term with planning, uh, the first rule I suggest is make sure you've done no harm. That is, you, you don't do something that only made sense if the law changed. It's something the client would never have done. And that's true even if you think rates are going up or the tax will be less favorable to the client in the future. That's great, but the clients are never going to be happy if you ended up doing something that, let's be honest, they hadn't done it before. There's a reason why they've never done this before, normally because they didn't want to give up control or some other reason why they wouldn't have liked being in a structure, as you would suggest, so you always have to be careful here, and this is another one. As was quipped on Twitter, uh, th this is basically one of those cases where the accountants who say don't really pay attention till the final bill, uh, it worked out. And to be honest, 99 times out of 100, that works out a lot better than trying to make moves based on preliminary proposals. As I mentioned in response to that tweet, if you remember, uh, we had, and it's weird because things can come in at the very last second. You may have forgotten by now the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in both the version passed by the House and the version passed by the Senate had a provision in it that would have been very, very problematical for certain uh, certain individuals who tried to sell their home. Uh, it would have added and it would have lengthened out the time frame for getting the exclusion for sale of a home. It would have added, as recall, one year to the ownership and uh, use rules. So it would have basically made it more difficult to qualify to get the two hundred and fifty or five thousand dollars exclusion. The interesting part was identical language was in bills that cleared each chamber. It went to a conference committee to resolve the differences. But somehow magically when it left the conference committee that one twenty one provision was gone. Similarly, old timers will remember we had a bill a number of years ago that when it went through at the very end, suddenly people noticed the bill the president signed had special trust rules in it that came to be known as the Gallo Trust because the Gallo family was who was pushing for it. And again, one of those things that just pops in late. If you're not, you've got to be very careful if you work with bills before they're finalized. You've got to be very careful, even if they pass, to double and triple check that the bill, that what you had planned on in the pre-final bill is actually the way it reads in the final bill. There's nothing new in there or things haven't disappeared. So as I say, but be careful right now. We'll have to watch this. But at the minimum, it's very clear that you're not going to be doing very, very last second tax planning on the Build Back Better Act as you get the final law text on the 28th of December 
you know, or like last year, the 27th of December when a bill was signed. This year, it apparently, if we get a bill, it will be passed in 22. The good news is not a lot in the Build Back Better Act was going to have an impact in 2021. So it could go to 22 without causing a disastrous problem. It's just that potentially, if it still has an effective date of January 1st, 22, there might be things that you would have liked to have done before the bill that now, of course, can't be done. We'll see how those things run. Okay, let's talk about those things that did get released this week. So the first thing I want to talk about here is we have Notice 2022-3. And this is the annual document the IRS releases on mileage, right? So this is your mileage rate when you're not going to use actual costs. So the mileage rate is going to increase to 58.5 cents per mile in 2022. Now, under the revenue procedure that currently governs this, as you're aware, you've got to meet the various requirements. You also, you know, have issues where you can't claim or you can't claim basically depreciation on the auto the first year unless you use the ADS life, as I recall, the way the rules work, uh, unless you use that. You, you can't switch back to the cents per mile. So you can't do 179 or 100% bonus in the first year and then use mileage in later years. That doesn't work. You'd have to use actual for everything there. But if you haven't used that 58.5 cents a mile, that's up two cents over 2021. So we have a change there. Uh, we also got updates. As you know, if you use the mileage rate, there is a presumed depreciation amount in there. For 2022, it'll be 26 cents per mile. The notice has all the as the earlier rates for a number of years. So you can go back and figure out based on the mileage in prior years how much depreciation is deemed to be in this car if you sell the car. And again, that could be important depending upon you need to calculate gain or loss because remember, we no longer get 1031 exchange treatment technically for an automobile uh, when we go to trade it in. Used to be we'd get that for a business automobile. Now, if it's a business automobile and we trade it in, we have to recognize a gain or loss on the trade in. So depreciation, at least in theory, could become more significant. The charity mileage, which as I recall, is hard-coded in the code, but it's always in this, is $0.14 cents per mile. So your client drives, you know, ha is doing something, volunteer work for a charity. For that purpose, he, you know, that person runs up some mileage because maybe they're driving around delivering meals on wheels. That's going to be $0.14 cents a mile that they get. Also, if you have expenses incurred for medical purposes, or in a very limited case where we can still deduct moving expenses, which is mainly for members of the armed services, that rate is 18 cents per mile. Again, the, this is a thing they would do at the end of the year. The big thing you normally have to do is then make sure if you're using mileage for reimbursing employees, as many companies do, because it's way simpler than using the actual costs in the cases like that. You do have to remember to go now and update your internal schedules to make 58 and a half cents per mile effective the beginning of next year. So, you know, you kind of set things up so next year you can start with 58 and a half cents per mile. The good news, I guess, kind of backdoor is the rate went up, not down. Uh, although I think people have adapted now to the fact that because oil prices are somewhat volatile and they do go up and down, that your systems need to be able to, to deal with a rate going down. Uh, you know, we've, that was a few years ago, the first time that happened and freaked out a lot of people. Not really an issue anymore, but that's what we have. 
Okay, next up. This is Revenue Procedure 2022-9. And yes, you've noticed we're in, we're in, in last one and this one, we're in 2022 years for these procedures. The reason for that, the IRS releases them on their website, but they have it, and then they give a date, they're going to put it in the Eternal Revenue Bulletin. The date it would be published in the Eternal Revenue Bulletin is the date that will determine if it's a 21 or a 22 procedure notice, etc. In this case, what's happening is these are going to be published in the IRB that comes in in 22, the first 22 version. Uh, you know, the other one, we'll get one more here this year that we'll talk about here at the end that got in for the last one for 21. So that's why you see the 22 revenue procedures, even though they're released in 2021. That's how things go. The IRS had previously issued uh, a revenue procedure that allowed you to automatically change your accounting method. You may remember for small business accounting method uh, items that were added by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. If you remember that, if you have average revenues for the prior three years of less than $27 million, that'll be for 22, 26 million for 21, and, you know, and you're not a syndicate or otherwise a tax shelter, you are able to elect to use the cash basis of accounting. You are able to use special inventory methods that are different than the standard 471A methods. You're allowed to ignore the UNICAP rules of 263 Cap A. You know, you're, you basically are also allowed to be treated as a small construction contractor for any job of two years or less, which gets you out of having to use percentage completion method on those jobs. And that may be beneficial for your contracting clients. So all of those are there. Now, the IRS had issued proposed regulations, and so they had uh, uh, methods that you could elect based on those proposed regs. One of the key ones there is going to be the syndicate, the syndicate mode. The proposed regulations, if you're a member, like I said, if you're not a syndicate, well, those rules defined what's a syndicate. And a syndicate was, is, was defined as, which it is per the law, basically, it is a, any entity where over 35% of the losses are allocated to, to what's called limited entrepreneurs or to limited partners. Well, we know what limited partners are. Limited entrepreneurs is someone who invests in the partnership or S corporation, but that party does not actually participate in the management. Now, there is an exception if they are related to a party that's actively participating in management. But this sort of thing really gets in trouble a lot of real estate promoter structures because they go out, establish new projects, and they go get new investors for each one, set up a new partnership. But those investors generally don't have a lot of, they're not involved in day-to-day -day management, right? They're kept away from it as much as possible. Though That creates a problem, not for the methods we talked about here generally, but this same rule is borrowed, the, the 27 million, 26 million, 27 million test for its cash basis is borrowed to qualify entities to not have to deal with the 163J limitations on interest deductions. Well, one of the things they did in the proposed regulations was they put in an exception because a lot of people were screaming about the syndicate rules. And so what they said there was, because it's only if losses, in a, if more than 35% of losses are allocated, not allocable to, uh, to these partners who are limited entrepreneurs and limited partners, 
the IRS said, you know, they're going to, you know, taxpayers were complaining that, well, we may not know until actually we're pretty far through the system and we like, you know, just getting ready to finish the return and find out, uh oh, we have a loss this year. We are a syndicate and suddenly have to apply 163J rules, which would be a radical change. And hey, we no longer have a loss, you know, so that'd be a problem. The IRS said, okay. In order to give you guys fair warning, we will allow a company to test for syndicate, not based on the current year, but test based on the prior year's results. Now, that was better than the alternative of just getting it hit with it this year, but it also meant you were guaranteed to be a syndicate the next year because the IRS had ruled that once you made that election, it was going to be good for life. It was it was a counting method that would essentially be good for life unless the IRS gave you permission to change. Well, recently, last year, as I said, they basically uh, correct, you know, got the, fi- got the regulations finalized for small business accounting methods, and they modified that syndicate rule. And the modified syndicate rule now no longer makes that election one that is an election that binds you forever because it is considered to be an accounting method. Rather, they say now it's just an annual election. That did create a bit of a problem uh, because under the proposed regulations, you know, if you did that, you got an accounting method change. It was permanent. Now suddenly you're sitting here and, you know, wait, I've elected and I've treated this accounting method change, so I need permission to get out. The IRS does clarify there that if that's what's trapped you, they're just going to let you very informally elect to not do it that way anymore and just use, you know, you use the prior year with an election on an annual basis by simply doing that for this year's return, right? So we'll, we'll take it for, we'll take it from that point. So just, just start doing it instead of worrying about, you know, the syndicate rules, instead of worrying about the fact that you had elected to use, the, to use this prior year test permanently. So, okay, that, that's fine for the service. They also clarified, you know, since, since we're past the initial TCJA phase in, and initially, they, they provided a waiver from what's normally a requirement for change of accounting methods that you can't change your overall method if you had changed your overall method under an automatic procedure in the prior five years. You would have to get formal permission, which means applying very early and paying a fee. So essentially, because you'd need permission before you could file the return. It's not automatic, as most of these are. In the final regular, so of course, the initial set of revenue procedures said you could do that for the first three years you could still make the change if you said oh you finally figured out hey we qualified to be cash basis but we had switched to accrual you know three years ago you could you could still make the election change for a short period of time because you had a prior to tcj change and you know you didn't have an option to stay on the cash basis and now it's open so they'd say yeah we'll skip it for then Obviously, we're getting past that point now. So now they've clarified, of course, with that going away. They, they said the five-year waiver, the waiver of the five-year rule is still going to be in place if you are forced to change. So let's say that your average revenue for the past three years, after you finish the 21 return, it becomes clear your average past three years revenue for 2022 you know, when you look at 22, your prior three years, 19, 20, and 21, is going to be over $28 million. So now you're barred, right? Beginning in 2022, you're barred from using the cash basis. Well, if you had just switched to cash basis, let's say in 21 or 20, 
that's less than five years. Does that mean you got to go through the formal application process, even though you're required to do it? And in these procedures, the IRS clarifies, no. No, if, if you're, it's going, there are going to be two differences. If you are forced to do it because you now go over the $27 million or $28 million, the $26 or $27 million limit, that's going to be an automatic change. It's just going to go back as long as you do it in the year you were required to change. However, if you, you know, if, if you just decide, I want to go back to cash basis, well, that's voluntary, and voluntary changes will still require you to get special permission if you're within five years. So you got to wait the five years generally to go back to the cash basis if you decide to change from cash to accrual. And it would be similar with the other small business accounting method rules. That, that's going to be part of the lack of automatic changes. Finally, we haven't talked about this one in a little while. We used to talk about this annually, so I figure I better talk about this year. IRS released Revenue Procedure 2021-52. This one came out on December 20th. Now, this procedure is the annual, and it, there was one year it got skipped. I can't remember a couple of years ago, but this is normally the annual. In fact, I think it was for, well, no, was it? No, it wasn't 20. It was, it was kind of there because no, it was not the pandemic did it because this thing usually comes out like this right at the end of the prior year. And as this one did. So what it is, though, is it just comes out and reiterates this, right? It, it updates. And in this case, it made very, very minor changes. What this is, it's supposed to be the method you must use to disclose a position to protect the taxpayer from a substantial understatement penalty or the preparer from a preparer penalty uh, for understating tax due to an unreasonable position, you know, or, or due, due to, yeah, whatever. Do, you know, for your position, if you, you know, you have to disclose the position unless the position had substantial authority. Remember that test. Now, as I tell people tongue-in-cheek, if the agent is sitting there disallowing it, you've got a real uphill battle to convince the agent or the appellate conferee or, frankly, even the tax court that your position had substantial authority, but they happen to think it doesn't work. So the odds are overwhelmingly you're behind the eight ball there. So what they're going, what you normally want to do is if the position is one where there might be challenges, there might be issues. You normally want to fulfill the disclosure requirements. That takes the 20% penalty off the table. Uh, it generally applies if the difference is five is more than $5,000 or 10% of the tax determined to be actually due. However, um, it can become, I should say, 10, 10%, 10% or $5,000 or 10% of the tax due, actually due. However, if you do anything with 199 Cap A on the return, that 10% goes to 5%, even if the issue doesn't relate to 199 Cap A and the, you know, the qualified business income deduction. That's a quirk. So generally, this is going to apply if a position lacks substantial authority but has a reasonable basis. So what do we have to do to say that we're protected there? Either the client is from substantial understatement penalty or we, for preparer penalties, there is not that kind of, you know, level below which it wouldn't apply. For us, technically, it could apply on a $1 adjustment if there's an understatement. So in order to do this, first thing is they make it very clear 
that the position, you must fully comply with all of the form instructions and provide all requested information. If you leave off information that is requested, you don't answer questions, that will generally destroy your, uh, your basically your ability to get out of this due to disclosure. You're going to be considered to be not in good shape on disclosure. And as it makes clear as well, for most positions, you also will need to file either a Form 8275 or an 8275R. 8275 is the basic one you normally file. The R version is only if you are taking a position that's contrary to a reg, presumably because your position is the reg is invalid. So that's when you use the R form. Otherwise, you use 8275. 8275 will point to the IRS where the issue is on the return and then we'll explain your position so that you can hopefully convince the service that they really don't want to examine this. To be totally honest, I've talked with people over the years. I've done A275s regularly, and I have never had an exam where the A275 issue came into play. Right? Other issues have, but not the A275. It is not. And by the way, this is the experience for all the people I've talked to who do file it, which is a minority of CPAs. But those that do file it has been, no, it's never, never, never been some sort of audit flag that, that caused the return to be examined. Uh, you know, either it was one of those things where it's going to be re examined regardless, so might as well get that in. Or it was just one where the issue that came with an exam on a return to A275 had nothing to do with that position. In fact, normally in that case, the agent assigned to the return is kind of surprised and may not even know what the form is and has to ask questions. So it's interesting. So remember, if you have those, this revenue procedure is what you must comply with. And if you've looked at it in the past, it really didn't change. They just added the word generally to the penalty under 6662 is 20%. They said generally because there are some cases where it's more than 20%. So leaving it at that, that's really the only change. Otherwise, this thing has not changed from what it was before. Well, this has been the current federal tax developments here for the week of December 20th. Uh, we're about to go into the holiday week, so I'm sure some of you are going to disappear and or may have already disappeared and will return after the new year, which case then you may be listening to this to catch up. So hopefully it's hopefully you had a nice New Year's uh, for those of you. Others, if you're going to hang around for next week, hopefully I'll be able to get an update in there, assuming anything happens. We know Congress is out of town. Uh, you know, the IRS may release a few more things here at the end. Sometimes they sneak things in late, uh, hoping that, you know, they just quietly go in there while nobody's around. But a lot of the IRS, you know, a lot of people in the IRS and Treasury that issue this guidance are probably also on vacation right now. So we'll have to see what happens. I am doing on Monday my final uh, set of sessions for this calendar year. So, I'm you know, Monday is going to be two one on the employee retention tax credit for one more time, four hours, and one on Arizona's new voluntary income tax rules. I suspect it's too late if you're interested to get involved in those, but we'll be looking at those. We are looking at seeing what we're doing in January uh, to see if things are happening. We had some tentative dates there based on a Build Back Better Act being passed. And at this point, that appears highly unlikely. So we'll see what we do to try to fill in there. If there are other topics that are hot at that point, so we'll just check. But keep your eyes open. Otherwise, uh, hopefully you're having a fine holiday season. 
if you're traveling, uh, take care, be safe, and uh, we'll get you back here because you got to get back for tax season, right? That, that's the whole point. You know, we all just are here thrilling, chomping at the bit to get into tax season. So get back. We'll have a little fun as the year begins. We'll see if a tax bill gets moving or not. And I'll be back here next week to talk about what's happened in the area of tax here for current federal tax developments.